1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
3: welcome to the julia hartley brewer daily if you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show don't worry we've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast the julia hartley brewer daily enjoy First up, though, let's talk about a furlough. Uh, Six million furloughed workers were actually working during their time from home during lockdown. Uh, why? Well, because apparently they were told to by their bosses. They were breaking the law, but hey, forced to by their bosses. This is according to a brand new uh, survey. It's a huge uh, survey uh, carried out by academics at Oxford, Cambridge and Zurich Universities, which revealed widespread abuse of the furlough system. They looked at uh, 9,000 workers uh, and found that the ban on working while furloughed was routinely ignored a fifth of furloughed employees were ordered to carry on working by their employer even though it was illegal they worked an average of 15 hours a week and seven in ten workers uh, received a discretionary top-up from their employer because of course it's only 80 percent of their salaries uh three in ten did not well let's talk about this with steve mccabe he's labour mp and member of the work and pensions select committee good morning to you steve
1: Good morning. Good morning.
3: Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning on this. Um, this is I mean, this is an absolute outrage, isn't it? This is uh, this is a scheme that was meant to save companies and save workers from being made uh, unemployed by keeping them effectively on, on a basic pay uh, to keep them, uh, them alive during the lockdown. This was something that the country came together uh, to fund them. And it's been abused on a mass scale, it would appear.
1: Well, I think it would be difficult to prove uh, that this happened, but uh, if it's certainly been uh, misused in the scale it's reported, yes, it's, it's fraud.
3: Yeah, I mean, that—that's that's it. You call it what it is. It is fraud. Now, we know that the HM Revenue and Customs say they're investigating 8,000 tip offs to the fraud hotline because that's just a fraction of the number of, uh, of these uh, the su- the suggested reported levels of uh, fraud. Uh, they've rejected 30,000 claims, which they consider dubious, apparently. But realistically, an awful lot of these firms are going to get away with it. They've not just stolen money. That's what they've done. They've stolen money from the taxpayer. uh, But they've also treated their own staff really badly. Well, as I say, I think in
1: a lot of cases, it will be difficult to prove. There are some uh, relatively straightforward tests. I mean, big reputable companies uh, disabled their their staff emails, for example. So there is a certain amount of uh, tracing that could be done using that kind of system. But uh, I I have to admit, I think some of these people are going to get away with it.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm sure an awful lot of them are. I mean, I I think the next big story as we fingers crossed come out of this pandemic get a vaccine like will be actually tackling those who uh, uh, do do HD for all this i i always felt actually when rishi Sunak, the chancellor announced this and i've i've personally felt quite emotional at uh, the idea that we would as a nation all sort of fund this together and, and help our fellow our fellow workers but i will i felt at the time there should have been a clear statement that anyone who who abuses this will face the severest penalties and i don't think that fines really hack it i want people to go to jail if they have done this but the real worry here is um Staff who have been told, oh, you're on furlough, the government's now paying your wages 80 percent, but we want you back in the office. And people saying that they, they said to their bosses, but I'm breaking the law and, and being very fearful that if they, they're either going to court, be caught breaking the law or that they're going to be sacked. Because some of them said that the employers simply said, you know, you either you either work while you're on furlough, while the government and the taxpayer funding your wages, or you don't have a job at all to come back to.
1: Yes, and I think if it is possible to get enough people per company, per business, to come forward and make clear statements to that effect, then there there must be a relatively good chance of some prosecutions. But, you know, I I have to be honest and say I am sceptical. It's one thing for people to give that to a survey. It's quite another thing about whether or not they'll they'll feel safe enough to come forward in other circumstances
3: that's the crucial thing isn't it of course the treasury's made it very clear that the people have to pay back any of the money they claimed on the photo scheme if they're found to have defrauded it but also pay back double that amount as the as the fine and of course i mean no doubt facing criminal prosecution now this realistically could actually see a lot of smaller firms that have done this going under. So you've got a worker who's been forced to work on the furlough scheme, worried about losing their job, basically losing their job if they do speak out. So there'll be quite an incentive to keep quiet.
1: Yes, and it was always the risk of a a scheme that had to be assembled very quickly and that couldn't have too many um, immediate safeguard measures in place; otherwise, it would have taken too long to implement. Yeah. So, I mean, I think he was always at risk. It was I mean, you talked about it being a joint sort of, you know, effort across the country. I mean, it was something where you were relying on people to be morally reasonable, and it sounds as if some people have just abused
3: it yeah i mean it it, it absolutely is i think the, the scale is quite shocking but i wonder if that does actually explain why we've seen you know 9.4 million workers on that scheme when the government themselves didn't expect it to be anything like that i think they expected something like a third of that number um uh, and 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 that that possibly explains it that maybe the word went round. hey you can do this and you can pay your workers and you know nudge nudge wink, wink everyone else is doing it you may as well have a go
1: Well, I think when the the time comes to look at this, it will be important to know exactly what kind of assessments were made at the outset. As I say, I've got some sympathy for the Chancellor because he had to do this in an enormous hurry. But, I mean, the lesson that's got to be learned is what assessments were made, what reasonable safeguards were in place, uh, and, you know... Is it possible to make an example of at least some of those who've abused it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're definitely going to need some naming and shaming, aren't we? But um, as you say, there's a trade off in terms of speed, getting this money to the companies that needed it, bearing in mind their money just disappeared overnight. And, and again, the money from the furlough scheme didn't come for uh, many weeks. A lot of companies were really struggling to get that money out as soon as possible as a trade off between making sure it only went to the people who deserved it. And you're always going to have some that fall through the cracks on that basis. We have that with with the, you know Universal Credit at the moment as well. Uh, but you presumably, they, I, mean, I know there's going to be an investigation by the Public Accounts Committee, because this involves huge sums of public money. Will there also be an investigation by the committee that, of which you're a member, the Work and Pension Select Committee?
1: Well, I think we, we need to know exactly... Uh, it's too early to say. I, I can't say if you will investigate it. I mean, obviously, the scheme was designed to keep people in work. Uh, yeah. And and to a large extent, it was successful up to a point. Uh, The the test will be in the new year about how many of those people are still in work. Uh, I think where companies have claimed a massive amount on the furlough and then actually get rid of a very substantial number of their employees, it's legitimate to have a good look Exactly, what their business practice has been over the period.
3: Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Labour MP Steve McCabe, member of the Work and Pensions Select Committee. Thank you.
1: Talk radio breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed.
3: Well, the front pages of pretty much all the papers today are all about schools returning. Uh, getting those kids back in the classrooms. number one priority for the government. The Prime Minister taking personal control of this, uh, trying to encourage parents and teachers to get back in the classroom next Thursday. Well, let's talk about next week. Sorry. Let's talk about this with uh, Nick Gibb, Minister for School Standards. He joins us now. Good morning to you, Nick. Good
2: morning, Julia.
3: Um, why is the Prime Minister had to step in here? Is uh, the Education Secretary not up to persuading parents and teachers back into the classroom?
2: No, the Secretary of State is leading this uh, charge. It's a moral imperative So all of us are out there talking about the importance of young people being back in school. It is a safe environment for schools. And indeed, the, the chief medical officers of the four UK nations are saying that the chances of children catching COVID in schools are incredibly small, in fact, with pupils more likely to suffer uh, long-term harm if they don't attend school, and the measures that we're putting in place in schools, the the bubbles keeping children uh, in different uh, groupings and not mixing unnecessarily with pupils, the hygiene measures, the uh, hand sanitizers in classrooms, the the one-way systems, the staggered lunch breaks and playtimes. I was at a school in Leicestershire on Friday, seeing the preparations that that school had a bit, had made to make sure that the the, the, the risk of transmission of the virus in the school environment is an, at an absolute minimum.
3: Why do you think, though, that I mean, look, vast majority of parents are in favour of this, and the public has uh, shown this latest YouGov poll, though, showing something like thirty percent of people are either opposed to schools reopening or unsure whether they should or not. Given all of the evidence about the likelihood of transmission between pupils, uh, two teachers, uh, the like, why do you think so many people don't think it's safe for children to return to school?
2: Well, 90% of parents have said that it's likely or very likely that children uh, will go to school. I am confident that all schools will open. In fact, uh, just before the summer break, 97% of schools uh, were open uh, and 1.6 million pupils were attending schools. So I think, you know, it is an important point to make that the schools have been preparing uh, since early July when we published our guidance for schools. Uh, they have been preparing to make schools safe, putting in place those measures. The school I saw in, uh, in Leicestershire, they had put extra entrances into the school grounds, they had widened pavements, huge number of measures. The teachers were kept two metres away from uh, their pupils. The desks were all faced in one way so that people weren't going to be breathing on uh, one another. The, the teachers also had their own um, keyboards so that when they went into a classroom, rather than touching equipment that has been touched by another adult, they plugged in their own, they were plug in their own uh, keyboards. The hygiene measures, the cleaning measures, the school smell of cleaning fluid uh, that I went to on Friday. So you, I think parents can be assured that schools are doing everything uh, to ensure that the schools are clean, uh, and that the risk of uh, transmission is at an absolute minimum.
3: And we know that some teaching unions are being very supportive of this. Uh, we know some teaching unions being less supportive, putting in more and more roadblocks, but also with a legitimate concern saying... They still don 't know what the protocol is, for instance, if there is an outbreak, does an entire school have to uh, uh, quarantine does it is it just a school year? Is it just the children who've been in contact with those children? Is everyone going to be tested? Have we got a test and trace system at a scale where we can go in and test every child at a school and every parent and teacher if if that is necessary um Do you understand that that actually a lot of those concerns will be considered very legitimate, even by parents who like me want their kids to go back to school on the first day they can?
2: Well, the, the protocols are very clear that if a, if a child or a teacher shows symptoms, they should go home, they should be tested. If that test proves positive, then the school will rely on evidence from Public Health England. And that will be about finding the contacts that that pupil or teacher has had in the school. That will that could be the bubble. It could be beyond the bubble. Uh, and then those, those people then will be self-isolating uh, uh, as well. Uh, and we have a huge... Uh, tests and trace system in place now with capacity of 300,000 tests a day, uh, going up to 500,000 tests a day by the end of October. And see, it's, it's that track, it's that test and trace system uh, that enables us to have quite granular information about where local uh, increases in infection are incurring, and then we can take those extra local lockdown measures to suffocate, if you like, the, the outbreak of, uh, of the spread of the virus in those particular areas. But, but infection rates today are significantly lower than they were at the peak of the virus. Admissions to hospitals are lower, fatalities are significantly lower uh, than they were. It is a moral imperative to get young people back into school. And what the uh, chief medical officers are saying is that the harm of not being in school now outweighs the very small risk of transmission of the virus within the school environment. And finally, just Julie, just be aware that there was some Public Health England research uh, that came out every weekend that, shows that, that looked at the infections in schools uh, that might have occurred in June when the schools were open, uh, and that shows again very few cases, and actually that the cases that there were in schools were likely driven by infections in the wider community and not uh, driven by what. Yeah, that, in that, just
3: looking at that uh, study, it shows one, one in ten thousand schools were hit by what we call an outbreak. An outbreak being, by the way, just two or more cases. Uh, And they think most of those outbreaks arose from staff to staff transmission outside of the school rather than uh, pupils. This is it, though. As you pointed out, we have seen a massive fall in the number of infections, massive fall in the number of uh, of hospitalizations and, uh, and of deaths. Um, and yet there's still so much talk about a second wave and so much talk about how it's just not safe. And if we reopen schools, we might need to close pubs, might need to close restaurants and uh, whether or not we can get people back into the workplace and all. That. There's constant, a lot of people would say, scaremongering about the risk of coronavirus and not putting those risks in perspective, not just for our children, but actually... <laughs> for the, uh, the parents, the adults, others going about their daily lives. Um, how concerned is the government about a second wave, given that we are seeing an increase in infections, in infections, largely driven by young people being out and about and mixing with each other, but we're not seeing more people going to hospital, we're not seeing more deaths. Those are going down and down and down. Do we really need to be concerned about a second wave?
2: I think all of us need to be vigilant in, in, in adhering to the rules about... Social distancing, uh, you know, obeying the rules about wearing a face mask when you go into us into a shop uh, or on public transport. All these, all these rules are there for a purpose. They're driven by the advice from the scientists, and we have to stick to them. What what I'm reassured by is that, is is the fact that we have now much more detail about any local outbreaks, and then we can take action in those localities. Uh, to deal
3: with the... With the um I mean, there seems to be I think you might have moved your microphone. Obviously we're doing we do all this virtually but it, you've gone a little bit unclear uh a little bit muffled. So I don't know if something's gone over your microphone but we'll try and persevere if that's okay minister. I'll move a bit closer. That's okay. a little bit better. Thank you. Um let's talk about holidays. Um uh, a lot of criticism of Gavin Williamson the education secretary your boss about being away in Scarborough uh, ahead of the on, on with his with his family ahead of the week before the uh, the A level results. Also criticism of your Colleague Gillian Keegan, uh, who decided to carry on with a holiday in the Alps, uh, despite the fact she was going to face quarantine, and just seemed to think, "Oh well, not a problem. I just I won't bother coming home. I'll face, I'll face quarantine anyway." Um Given that we're looking at millions of young people, you know, looking going back to school, um, huge numbers of pupils facing, you know, those GCSE, those A-level results. The future's are really on hold when they didn't know whether the grades were going to be enough to get into to university. We've still got still got huge numbers of pupils who still don't know what their future is going to be as a result of all of that. And, and BTECs and all of that still up in the air. Is it really appropriate for government ministers in your department to be away on holiday?
2: Well, Gavin cancelled his holiday uh, uh, in France, to France and he uh, he, he visited uh, his family in Scarborough, where they're from. Uh, first time he'd seen the family uh, since lockdown. And of course, all during that time, he's in constant touch with, with uh, the department. And of course, you can hold meetings uh, virtually. But he cancelled um, a crucial
3: meeting, didn't he?
2: Well, meetings get moved around all the time uh, in, in the department. Look, you know, we are taking, we took swift action to deal with the problems we, we saw with the grades, uh, last Thursday and, and, and this just this last Thursday uh, hundreds of thousands of young people received their GCSE grades hundreds of thousands of young people received their recalculated uh, A-levels and we're working now on making sure that this week uh, all those young people waiting for their vocational qualification uh, grades will get them as well so we are, whenever there are problems, and there will be problems this pandemic the whole, the whole reason it happens, Nick, Nick
3: give I'm so sorry. You, I don't know where you've gone. I can see you're still on your screen, but you've obviously covered up your microphone with some of a piece of paper or something because we can't hear you. I do apologise.
2: Hey, I'm so sorry.
3: <laughs> right, that's a bit better. And it's now, if better, you can so see far. the video, anybody you can watch watching this live, then you was yes, you, you, alarmingly, <laughs> alarmingly close. Alarmingly um, close, but uh, No, look, we, we know
2: we, we will take swift action when we're dealing with these problems, and all these issues arise from the fact we are in the middle of a pandemic and that's why we had to cancel exams but you know we, ministers are working around the clock to tackle all these problems and now the imperative is getting all our young people back to school. I'm confident that all schools will be open uh, in, in the beginning of September and I'm also confident that parents will want to send their children back to school. In fact the pupils I met uh, in Leicestershire on Friday they were desperate to get back to school. Talk
1: Radio Breakfast with Julia Hardy Brewer
3: That leads me into my next guest, Douglas Murray, author of the internationally best selling book, The Madness of Crowds, following on from his also internationally bestselling book, The Strange Death of Europe. I'm delighted to say it. Douglas Murray joins me now to discuss his new paperback edition of that book with wonderfully an updated afterword, given how much has happened since that book was first published in September last year. Good morning to you, Douglas.
0: Good morning, it's great to be back with you, Julia.
3: Uh, Lovely to speak to you. Um, I have to say, I can imagine the frustration, having written The Madness of Crowds, uh, which uh, has been an international bestseller, as everyone would have predicted, um, summarising just sort of, just the, the strange ways in which we, we now seem to have to debate issues like race, like gender uh, and the like, um, to then have everything that has happened since uh, in terms of trans rights, Black Lives Matter, even to see the, the latest events with the BBC and decolonisation and the like. Um, every single day, there's another chapter waiting to be written, isn't there?
0: Yes, well, I mean, one of the disappointments when people say, you know, your book was prophetic or it predicted what's happened, the problem with that is, as an author, you you, you can't help thinking, I just wish that I'd have done it more or more people had read it because we could have stopped this. You know, I mean, it's, it's true. All of this is what I said would be coming down the line. And it's just come even more ferociously than we expected. The just mad... Um, the mad emphasis on identity issues as being the main things in our lives and in our time that now are dictating the news, they're dictating in America, certainly now, uh, uh, not just elections, but civil order in cities across the US. And, you know, if we'd have said 10 years ago, Julia, that in 2020, the main conversations of our time would be obsessive conversations about gender issues racial issues. I think you and I would have thought, are not we going to be able to do more than that by about 2020? Uh, well, are that... we going to have more to look forward to?
3: Indeed, I, I, I was raised at a time when we, we were, the idea was that we would never have to talk about those things because they'd become exactly. irrelevant. But this is the interesting thing, isn't it? Because when the pandemic struck, as horrific as it has been, the lockdown, all of the effects and all of the deaths and everything that's happened around the world, there was a bit of hope, and you touched on this in, in your update in, in the book, that, that well, okay, now we've got a real problem. All these people who, who come up with these made up problems will have a real problem to focus on. This is going to bring us all together. The, the feeling of community and unity, we're all in this together. But no, it was within a matter of weeks that identity politics reared their heads again.
0: That's right. I say in the updated version of the Madness of Crowds that I mean there was a there was an early uh, bit of hope, as it were, in a bleak time at the beginning of Corona, when Sam Smith sent out a photograph of himself in his mansion, looking unhappy, and the, the reaction wasn't quite as warm as he probably hoped. In fact, most people didn't have all that much sympathy for him. Uh, various people pointed out, of course, that since Sam Smith had come out as plural a little time before, at least they had themselves for company. But uh, the uh, the <laughs> But, you know, you'd have hoped that, well, this is the sort of thing that'll that'll change it. We won't have much, much time for this. So there were little glimmers of hope that now we had a real problem. People wouldn't have much time for basically imaginary ones. And then uh, something quite different happened after the horrible killing of George Floyd in America. The whole thing uh, turned. And I say that the, that what happens at times like this is as well as the coronavirus showing what bits of societal trust we still had, it also revealed our own societal underlying morbidities. And what it did was it exposed the fact that there were certain things that our society seemed now to view as being even more important than public health. And in America, and then in Britain, it was revealed that all of the things I describe and the madness of crowds were deemed, particularly by younger people, to be even more important, whether they had a justification or not, even more important than the health of the general public. And that's what I say in the book, that's because these issues of race, gender, sexual identity are effectively the new religions in our countries.
3: Yeah, and, and this is where I think it is difficult for the, you talk about the madness of crowds. It, it, for, for most people, the majority of people in this country, poll after poll shows, this is not their obsession. And yet this is the mm-hmm. obsession in our media, certainly the obsession in our social media. And and when people make statements, as people like J.K. Rowling do, about about simple things, like when a company or an or organisation refers to uh, people who menstruate, they say, oh, I think we used to have a word for those people, and we called them yeah. women. That now is regarded it is transphobia. There was an attempt to, uh, to cancel J.K. Rowling as a result of making this statement. That there are there are enough people in this very small minority to wield an awful lot of power and more and more people are being cowed by. I've seen many interviews with you where you've talked about how the cancel culture doesn't affect you because you are, you know, you're an author, you're effectively self-employed. You don't have to worry about an employer saying, oh, no, Douglas, you've gone too far this time. But how much do you think that is affecting ordinary people listening to the show right now, day to day?
0: Oh, it's huge. I mean, I've heard from so many people since The Madness of Crowds first came out in hardback last year. So many people. I mean, from people who've lost their jobs uh, uh, to people who... uh, parents of children who've been told lies about gender identity at their schools and have come home terrified, for instance. So many stories of this. And of course, most recently, this weaponization of the one ideal within the third chapter of race, this weaponization of race that is now terrifying to everyone. Look what we've just had the discussion about just before I came on, this idiotic idea that the BBC drops Um, songs like Rule Britannia from the last night of the proms, what is this other than this extraordinarily virulent strain of alleged anti-racism, which is actually racism in a new guise Uh, which, which assails absolutely everything to do with British culture, as in recent months we've seen it try to assail everything to do with American culture. We see ice cream companies like Ben & Jerry's turn from being the producers of horrible, fattening, almost inedible and overpriced products into being companies that appear to just exist to lecture us on so-called anti-racism. And so, of course, the general public, we're cowed by this. Now, I suggest and, and say to people, let's try to turn this around. We have to identify the fact that on all of these issues, these are minority views. Most people do not think that Britain is a racist hellhole. Most people do not think that we are patriarchal rape allowing societies you know we don't think this what we're dealing with is not just critics but malevolent and dishonest critics they say things about our society that are not true just as they say things about sex and gender that are not true there are not a hundred genders there are two sexes and very, very small numbers of people who have conditions in between that. But this does not mean we need to rewrite and rewire our whole understanding of biology any more than the so-called anti-racists have the right to rewrite everything about our history and interpret everything that this country has done in this malevolent light.
3: Um, Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Because it seems to me there is something of a fight back by the sane, silent majority. We we saw that over Brexit, uh, we we've seen that over lots of issues. That actually, you know, when the, the taking of the knee, and when mm. I'm Dominic Raab on my show, as foreign secretary, asked him about taking yeah. the knee. There was outcry over his not knowing when the, the taking of the knee come from. Yes. but 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 95 percent of the responses to the millions he viewed that was. Good for you. Boris Johnson's poll, 80% of people said, no, no, they wouldn't take the knee and they supported the prime minister not doing it. Do you think that, that, that I mean, are you, are you pessimistic or optimistic that the, the silent majority will win in the end?
0: So, the taking the knee is a very good example of this. Uh, at an England cricket game the other day, again, it happened. The BBC said, you know, now or just before the uh, game commences, of course, both teams are taking the knee, as if this is an incredibly long established tradition, which we've always done. Now, this is only possible because of a couple of things coming together. One is this mad rush of identity politics into everything, and the other is the coronavirus. I submit that this sort of a thing would not have happened at cricket matches and at football matches if the stadium had people in them, fans, observers. So I'm very confident that armed with the right arguments, armed with the way to... To basically diffuse the bombs that these people are placing in our societies, that the majorities can fight back and stop this. The crucial thing is we have to be able to do it. We cannot have this future that is being prepared for us where men are weaponized against women and women against men, where gays and lesbians and bisexual people and trans people are all weaponized against everyone who's straight. And we can't have a future where, in the name of anti racism, we spend all of our time obsessing about race we had until very recently a different idea of how we could go forward an idea by the way that was led the led, person who led the way most was martin luther king who dreamed of this colorblind future we cannot have people who dream of re-racializing our societies if we do and i say this at the end of the forward to the new edition if we do then we have a future that is going to be unbelievably divisive and violent and we need to know how to avoid that now
3: Douglas Murray, it is always a pleasure and I'm sure I echo all of my listeners. Uh, he's the international best-selling author of, of uh, The Madness of Crowds, a new edition uh, out uh, up to now and uh, I have to say um, it, it, it makes an awful lot of sense out of some very senseless stuff. Douglas Murray, thank you very much indeed. For- Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10.00.